Sometimes you just want the quick facts. No opinions, no speculation. I'm Claire Thornton, an audio editor with USA Today. My team works around the clock to bring you the Five Things podcast. Every morning, me and my co-host Taylor Wilson help you know what to keep an eye out for that day. We always have a fresh mix of stories, from politics to entertainment to sports, covering all parts of the country. On Sundays, you can lean back with in-depth episodes about stories you may have heard earlier that week. Go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows and start listening to Five Things today. In the great halls of USA Today, we assemble the newsroom's mightiest nerds. Brett Molina. I'm so sorry for the producer of this podcast. <laughs> Kelly Lawler. I will fight you on it. Brian Truitt. Spoiler town! <laughs> Together, they form The Mothership. Their mission? To harness their collective encyclopedic knowledge of nerdiness in all its forms. To dissect every trailer, plot twist, and game released for the geekiest of fans. The Mothership, saving the universe from bad comic book adaptations every Friday. All aboard the Mothership, the Geek Culture Podcast from the USA Today Network. Thanks so much for joining us, and happy Friday, everybody. Woo! Woo! Uh, let's meet the crew. I'm Brett Molina. I play video games. And what's getting me through this week is I have been, for the last maybe week or so, playing the Xbox Series X, which is the new Xbox that is out on November 10th. Um, if I'm talking really slowly, it's because I'm very tired because I've spent a lot of time playing this for uh, to review, um, which you can read on tech.usatoday.com. Um, it is a lot of fun. I basically compare it to upgrading your smartphone because you buy it and basically it's pretty seamless. It kind of feels like you're on the older Xbox, the Xbox one, but all your games come with you. Um, every pr pretty much everything comes with you as you go to this new console, but it's also got a lot of touches like um, the games look a little bit better. The biggest change for me that I love the most is you are spending way less time waiting for things like the game to load or for title screens. It's literally just you turn the game on and within a couple seconds you're playing. It's amazing. It's very, it's pretty life changing, game changing, forgive the pun. But um, it is, it is, it, it's, it's nice. The one thing that I'm, um, the, the, the one thing that gives me pause about getting it right away is there isn't like this big, like, game or experience on there that makes you think okay this is kind of the next level of xbox it's not there yet i think we're gonna have to wait a couple years before we get there um but from what i've seen it's very enjoyable and again not having to wait through load screens is amazing i'm brian truitt and i watch movies and what's getting me through this week and pretty much this whole entire month is Ted Lasso, the Apple TV Plus show starring Jason Sudeikis. It's pretty much major league with British soccer. Sudeikis, a much better Joe Biden than Jim Carrey will ever be, I might add, plays a Capra-esque American football coach who knows nothing about European football, but is hired to be the coach of an English soccer team who the new owner is trying to relegate to a lower division to get back at her ex, and it, there's a whole subplot with, with that. Um, but Ted Lasso charms the pants off her and everyone else because of his hopelessly optimistic ways. You know, 
the the fans call him bad bad words. The local pub hates him, but like he is just such an optimist, and he's so so much of a good guy that everyone kind of comes around in a really cool way. It just brings me so much joy. It's hilarious and heartfelt with no cynicism, and I can't wait for season two, which I think is supposed to start production soon, and the recently announced season three. So go watch Ted Lasso. And I'm Kelly Lawler. I watch TV. Um, and what is getting me through this week is uh, the YouTube series Binging with Babish, which, well, all of uh, Binging with Babish YouTube series, so he's got a couple other ones. It's now called the Babish Culinary Universe. If you've never heard of this thing, it's where this guy, his actual name is Andrew Ray, um, recreates food from uh, pop culture, like the burger cook-off in Parks and Recreation, or um, like silly crap that Homer makes on The Simpsons or what what have you. Um, and he's a really good chef and he's funny. And I got into his videos because I used to watch Bon Appetit before, you know, they got horrible. But I followed this woman named Zola L. Whaley, um, who was a really good chef on Bon Appetit. And now she's working for this Babish guy. Um, and I watched her new series there. Um, and then uh, I got really into his original series, which is like kind of a culmination of everything I'm really into, like cooking shows, pop culture, a guy with a podcast voice, like he's a hipster with beard and he likes John Favreau movies and it's all it's all really nice. Um and it's very sweet and uh I like to learn about cooking and then also I like to watch clips of funny pop culture scenes. Um so highly recommend. And there are a whole bunch of videos and they're all about ten minutes long. And it's so it has been taking up a lot of nice time that I've been just like wanting to like not focus on anything and just watch someone bake a cake basically. And it's really nice. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. New episodes of The Mothership drop every Friday and you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen. While you're on Apple Podcasts, it would be awesome if you could write a quick review about the show. By doing that, you'll help other fans who love nerdy pop culture find us. And as a bonus, you get a very special shout out on the next episode. So try it out. Uh, tell us what you want to see from the show moving forward. It's all upside for you. Uh, don't forget, along with leaving a review, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Mothership Pod. Or you can email us to MothershipPod at USAToday.com. Uh, let's get to the main topic. Here's a clip. That's me, Millie. My life was pretty normal until the night I switched bodies with a serial killer. Hello? Oh, my God. Why do I sound like that? Freaky, right? <laughs> Ah! Really? It's me, it's Millie! Hey, hey, Blissfield, I feel our glory and our might. Oh my god! He's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yes, I'm some kind of freak! Who knows how many of our friends he's gonna kill? Ah! Oh my god, it's a slaughterhouse. I don't want my body back. Come and get it. That was from the new horror comedy Freaky, starring Katherine Newton as a high school kid and Vince Vaughn as a serial killer. And thanks to a magical dagger, the two swap bodies, which, yes, this means that Vince Vaughn acting like a teenage girl. It's big Freaky Friday vibe, it seems. Uh, the film is directed by Christopher Landon, and the man behind the Happy Death Day series is one of our special guests this week. Brian recently had a chance to chat with Chris about Freaky, the perils of being funny and gory, and if we'll ever see a third Happy Death Day. Uh, so first off, how's life been treating you during COVID? Oh, you know, <laughs> it's fine. It could be worse, I guess. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I think it's 
um, you know, the, the, the new normal is now the old normal. Um, so I've kind of forgotten what life was like before it in a weird way. Yeah. I get that. Have you been able to do any work or I have, have any hobbies? I have no hobbies, definitely no new hobbies. I wish, I mean, I did go through like a baking phase. Like I think everybody did. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, no, I've, I've, I've had a lot of work. I've had a lot of writing that I was able to catch up on. Um, and, um, I have a, I have a, we gave birth to my second son, um, uh, mid-December. So a lot of this sort of lockdown phase was just sort of parenting stuff and, you know, doing that, that, that thing. Um, but that's been the challenge too, just because like, I've never worked from home before. So, um, there's been a learning curve. Well, congratulations for that. What's what's raising a newborn like in the in the apocalypse? <laughs> it's, interesting. it's interesting. You know, it's funny because um, you know, um my my first son, who's three, um, he, you know, we like went everywhere with him and passed him around to everybody. And so he's just super comfortable around people. And then my my second son, he like once we were finally able to have some family over, like he would cry if anybody else touched him. Like he just was not used to it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of moved past that now, but yeah, it was a really interesting kind of thing to, to, to witness. So. So what kind of filmmaking mojo did you have to do to make Vince a teenage girl? Because he is quite a good Millie. <laughs> um, you know, I think it was just a lot. We did a lot of, of, rehearsals um we put a lot of work into that that part of the film um and but also like one of the reasons i cast vince was because he um i mean look he's a funny guy um he's charming but he's also like a real actor you know like he really invests in in these characters and so one of the things that we spoke about when we first met was like that we didn't want this to be some sort of a caricature of a girl like i wanted him to be millie um and so i think he really he went there and I think it's, you see it in the film, not just in sort of the physical nature of the role, but also like the investment in terms of like, you know, how he communicates with other characters, you know, like how he, how he communicates and deals with his friends, how he, you know, communicates with his mom. Um, Like all those things in the movie work because he's really, he's really allowing him, giving himself permission to be Millie. Well, I think that's, you know, both him and Catherine, I think that's kind of what makes what makes those personas so great is they have to each have play two different characters, but, you know, but also embody their body movements, mm-hmm. you know, different body movements, different ways they talk, you know, two very different people. Were they always your first choices? Or was that a difficult thing, finding the right pair who could pull that off? No, they were my first choice. They were genuinely and honestly my first choice. Um Vince, because I just couldn't think of anybody else that that embodied both characters as 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 strongly and as well as he does. Like you know, he's physically intimidating. He's six four. Um, you know, he's scary. Like he's a very intense dude. Um, and after seeing movies like Cell Block, I was like, this this guy is is legit. Um, but also the charm, the humor, the humanity. So all of those boxes had to get had to get checked, and he and he does that. And then Catherine, you know, I think that she is such a, an immense talent. Um, she's so naturally gifted. We had worked together on Paranormal Four, and so I already knew all those things about her. But um, she's also grown a lot as an actor over the years. 
Um, and I saw stuff in like big little eyes that just blew me away. Um, and then, but also knowing her as a person that, you know, she's, she's a, a really intense, devoted actor. Um, and so I knew that she wasn't just going to show up and mail it in or, you know, like I knew she'd throw herself at it because it required a certain fearlessness that I know that she has that not everybody has. Um, so it really felt like those were the only two people that made sense. And I was having to sort of emotionally prepare myself for them to say no. That, that was the hardest part for me was that I knew I was going to give them this script. And I really did think that one or, or, or both of them would say no. And they said yes. And I was quite happy. You've already proven a knack for kind of striking that brilliant balance between horror and comedy with the Happy Death Day movies. Was Freaky a trickier project to find that dynamic in certain ways? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think every movie presents a new challenge. Um, and, you know, one. I think the, the biggest challenge of this movie wasn't about a balance of tone. Like, I always kind of know what I think my movies are. Um, it's always execution. It's always like, this was a very, it's a deceptively big movie jammed into a very tight schedule. Um, and that's sort of just the Blumhouse thing. Um, so that was really the biggest challenge of this movie. It was just like, how do I, how do I pull this off in the time that I have and the money that I have? Um, but I always feel like, um, you know, having a strong lead character, um, is what grounds everything in these in these movies where you're kind of bouncing around tonally a little bit um as long as we're following this one character's trajectory and their experience then i think it kind of keeps everything in check um so i wasn't worried about that stuff well and you were able to go to some really gory lengths with you know the various super fun kills that you have in here yeah. did you run into any instance though where you felt like it was maybe too much for the tone and had to pull some th things back or like get rid of certain things or you just went, you just went for it. <laughs> I would have gotten further if I could. Uh, <laughs> no, I wanted this to be like big over the top gore. Um, almost, almost, you know, cartoonishly. So in the way that I think like, you know, Raimi would do that often in, in his stuff, like evil dead too. Um, and even drag me to hell, you know, which was not an R rate. I don't think it, maybe it was it R rated. I can't remember now. But there was some like outlandishly gross stuff in that movie, but like yeah. it works, it works for the tone. Um, so yeah, I was, I was all in on that stuff. Um, I think the, the only limitation that we had again was like, what could we, what could we afford to do? And there were a couple of times when it felt like some of the gags I was trying to pull off were not going to happen for those reasons. Um, but I'm glad that we, I really tried to like dig in, um, and, and we figured it out. When you were Millie's age, what were you like? Millie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was really easy to write. Cause I was kind of her. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I was, I was, I was incredibly shy. I was codependent and an introvert. And I think I still am in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I had, you know, a very tiny, tiny group of friends. We ate our lunch in a hallway away from everybody else. Um, so there's so much of, of who I, who I was and who I am in Millie and, and in the, in this movie. And I know that Michael Kennedy, my co-writer, like, you know, we had a very similar experience in high school. You know, we were both closeted 
Um, and so that informed so much of, of what we wrote and what we did here. Um, and so much of this movie is like a revenge fantasy. Um, and so I think that there was a catharsis for, for both of us in, in writing this and making it. Um, so I relate to Millie a lot. And, um, and I'm a, I am like a kind of a giver and a doer in that way, you know, like I, I, I want other people to be happy. Um, and sometimes I, I sacrifice my own wants and needs in the process. And that was something that I was kind of exploring in this movie with, with Millie. When I talked to Vincent, he said, I mean, kind of the one of the things that he, he really liked about it was it was deceptively emotional because, you know, you get to, for both the butcher and Millie, you get to kind of see their character, flesh them out a little bit and see, you know, and see what really matters to them, see what, what how, you know, what they care about and stuff and, and how it kind of goes into the whole movie. And I think that's really interesting too, because like you said, kind of, I, I feel like the thing about Millie is, you know, she she has her group of friends and yet she's kind of a loner in her own high school, but she almost still has to be a little bit of a loner for people to be like, she, she's abnormal. She's somebody else when she's the butcher. But when the butcher's in her, she's there's still a little bit of Millie in there because of that loner thing. You walk a tightrope with those characters, but yeah. there's always the emotional undercurrent with them. Yeah. And I think that was important. You know, I always try to find like, what is that character's journey and what are they going through and how are they going to be transformed by this experience that they're having? And so, you know, there's a, there's a key moment in the middle of the movie. That's kind of like the centerpiece of the movie, which is the scene between, between Millie and her mom in a dressing room. Um, and it's really Vince and, and, and um, Katie Finner. And, and it's a moment that I think it's a very, it's a, it's a powerful moment in the movie because it's a wish fulfillment moment as well as a, as a, as a moment of catharsis where Millie can finally say things to her mother that she's never been able to say because she's speaking with someone else's voice. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that it was a really, it's a really interesting moment in the film that I think helps, helps her as a character sort of pivot into a different, you know, different phase and a different person. So I'm dying to see the final movie of the happy death day trilogy. What do you think comes first, the third film or the end of the world? <laughs> Probably the end of the world, um, <laughs> which is a real bummer. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. There are days when I, I, I hear things and it feels like, Oh, we might actually, maybe we'll get to make this third movie after all. Um, and then other times it just feels like it's impossible. Um, you know, it's one of those things where like, if I were in charge, you know, it would be a no brainer because, you know, in spite of what, you know, people said, like the second movie was financially a successful film. Um, and then we, and then we gained a ton more, uh, fans when it, when it finally reached, you know, cable and VOD and whatnot. So... I would think that we have enough of a fan base to do it. Um, but nobody from Universal's calling me about it. So what are you going to do? So, and do you see Freaky as a franchise or something you might want to do as perhaps an anthology with the dagger as a connective vice? I mean, you could tell all, you know, so many t different stories with the, you know, the dagger playing right. an important role. I mean, you could. I mean, I think we obviously leave the door open at the end of this movie. I personally would not 
want to make another movie unless I had a real reason to do it. And it's not a money thing and it's not a, oh, let's make another franchise. Like I, I made Happy Death Day 2 because I knew in my gut that I, there was another story I wanted to tell. Um, and so that's, that's what motivates me. I, I'm only interested in, in trying to sort of advance um, a character or the mythology of, of, of a movie. Otherwise, if it's just like, oh, let's make a movie because it'll make money, then it just seems pointless and I'd rather go do something else. Well, the next story we see from you, will it be in, the, in a horror comedy vein or will it be something totally different? It's something, it's something I'm hoping the next movie, because I, I feel like I'm getting, I just knocked on wood, closer to something I've been wanting to make for a long time. Um, and it has, it has a connection to the horror realm, but it's not a horror film at all. Um, but I think it's, it's unmistakably me. In, in, in terms of, of what it is and, and the tone of it. Um, so we'll see what happens. I really hope, I really hope I get to make this movie though. Cause it's, I think it's really, it's, it's one of the coolest things I've ever written. So we'll see. As a director who finally got to make, you know, an R-rated movie, got to do the gores and the gory stuff, the, the, the kills and everything else. Was there one in particular where you were like just gleeful and you know, the gore, the blood, or just that you really had the most fun ever doing? I mean, I think, I mean, look, I had fun doing all the kills in this movie because I think they're all kind of unique and weird and and both gross and funny. Um, I think, you know, there's one very big kill, again, sort of toward the middle of the movie um, that we did with Alan Ruck, who plays you know, right? mm-hmm. woodshop teacher. And I think part of the joy of that one was that I knew it was going to be really gory and it was a really difficult one to pull off. It was complicated for a number of reasons. Um, so that was, that's probably my favorite one in the movie. Um, just because I think you, you think you're going to cut away from it and then you don't. <laughs> and that's kind of what I love about it. And you see everything. That's the greatest yeah. part of it. It's yeah, just like, it's real quick. Like, it's like, yeah. And and there was also like something kind of wild west about it because like we didn't know exactly how it was going to go um, because there were so many different elements involved and so little time. Like I had really one shot at doing that. Um, And, and it was something on multiple throughout the pre-production process, multiple times the powers that be tried to stop it. Cause they were like, this is too expensive. It's too complicated. It's gobbling up too much time. Just can we please write a different death and make it quick? Um, and it was the one that I was like, no, no, no. Um, and, and now I'm glad it stayed. Cool, man. Thank you so much, Chris. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye Brian. So freaky is one of the few high profile films actually releasing in theaters these days because conventional movie going is pretty much a disaster. Thanks to the pandemic. Regal recently reclosed theaters and AMC, the biggest theater chain in North America, posted a nearly billion dollar loss in the third quarter of 2020. To chat about all this, our other special guest this week is Nathan Bomey, business reporter and my colleague um, at USA Today. Uh, Nathan has been following the financial struggles of the movie theaters, and so he's an expert to talk about when and if we might actually return to the cinema. Nathan, thanks for being here. Is this your first time? It is. I mean, as a, a bankruptcy nerd, I'm not sure if that makes me qualified <laughs> to join you guys on the Geek Culture Podcast, but I do love it, and I'm a verified friend of the pod. 
It's true. It's almost like we're sitting in the same office five feet apart again. <laughs> exactly right. Oh, for the days. <laughs> so let's dive into the hard stuff because obviously there's there's a lot of uh, you know turbulence happening in in the movie theater business. Do you see movie theaters surviving after all this? Well, here's the problem. I think that movie theaters will survive, but I'm not sure that movie theater companies will survive. At least the ones that we know of right now. And that's what's interesting. You know, AMC and Regal and all the other independent chains that are out there are obviously facing dire straits, the likes of which we they haven't seen probably since the movie business started. Um, but you know. Whether or not they survive is, I think, a separate question from whether or not movie theaters survive. And what I mean by that is, you know, AMC may not make it, but that doesn't mean that their theaters will go away. Those theaters will still be there. And the question is, does somebody else acquire them and just, you know, start them up as a separate company and continue to run movie theaters, make separate new deals with studios? Or uh, do they completely go away, which is certainly not out of the realm of possibility. So walk us through what might happen if one or more of the chains file for bankruptcy. I mean, if for for somebody who goes to the movies, what does that look like for them? Okay, well, as a bankruptcy nerd, someone I've covered, you know, municipal bankruptcies, corporate bankruptcies, and so I I feel like I do have a decent handle on this, but we've never seen a major theater chain file for bankruptcy, and so we don't know exactly what it would look like, but if you look at AMC's financials right now, they just said on the call earlier this week, earnings call that they're only a few months away from potentially running out of money. Now, they talk about how they're going to raise money and they're going to issue some more stock and possibly restructure some debt and all these things to try to give themselves some extra runway. But if they do run out of money, they'll be in Chapter 11 bankruptcy court pretty quickly. Now, the good thing about American Bankruptcy Court is that it does often provide you the chance to restructure your debt and to survive for and live on to see another day. Of course, we know that a lot of great companies have made it through bankruptcy. General Motors, American Airlines, companies that a lot of us deal with all the time. So just because they end up in bankruptcy doesn't mean that they go away. But anytime you end up in bankruptcy, there's always the risk of total liquidation. Like, for example, uh, what happened to Toys R Us, which ended up going to Chapter 11 bankruptcy two years ago and thought they'd be okay, and they weren't. So, you know, there is that that possibility. What would happen is AMC would end up in bankruptcy and they would try to negotiate deals with their creditors to cut their debt, essentially reduce the amount of liabilities, reduce what they owe to people who have lent to them in the past. And if they're able to secure deals there, then maybe they survive. Another option is they could try to arrange a sale of the business inside of bankruptcy and leave all the debt behind. Like that's what GM did, for example. Like the General Motors we know today is not the General Motors that existed 20 years ago. It's a separate company, but None of us really care about the legal imagination. So that's also a possibility for AMC, Regal, or any of the others. So there has been talk that some movie studios, like some of the big ones, uh, might end up buying movie theaters or buying out the chains. Um, That might take some legal wrangling. Do you think that's a way to save theaters, or is that just not going to work from a business standpoint? 
I don't think that the theater chains can rule anything out. Uh, they have to consider any potential acquisition offer, I would think. Now, I know that there might be some antitrust concerns there, and how that plays out is really difficult to say. But with the uh, environment you know, for theaters and entertainment changing so rapidly, it seems like it would be hard for the federal government to step in and stop a studio chain from acquiring a theater company that may just go away completely if they don't. So you know, I, I think that's a possibility. But my guess is that AMC in particular will try to you know, keep the studios at arm's length to the greatest extent possible, given the fact that they've tussled already with the studios. So they don't seem to be too eager to jump in bed with each other right away. But, you know, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility that they could end up doing like that, something like that as a last ditch uh, effort to survive. And we know, you know, they're already grappling with the differences between streaming and, and whether they can get a little piece of the money on streaming or not. And so, you know, they'd said to on their earnings call earlier this week that they're optimistic they, they can continue to negotiate deals where they get some of that money. So, you know, ultimately, I would think you guys know this industry way better than me, but I would think the studios still want the theaters to survive in the end because some of those big budget movies probably can't be done uh, otherwise. So, you know, they, they, they are sort of in the same boat in the sense that they kind of need each other, but there's some tension there, too. So currently, Wonder Woman 1984 is the last big movie of the year holding out and holding on to its theatrical date on Christmas Day. Um, and we've seen a handful of movies released in theaters this year. Does it make any business sense for this movie to come out on Christmas Day? Or are they better off, say, pushing it out to next summer? Well, the AMC CEO on earnings call this week said that he they won't know whether Wonder Woman comes out on Christmas until Christmas. <laughs> he said <laughs> he essentially acted like they won't even know if it comes out until they actually see it out. So, you know, obviously we, we have to wait to see what happens there. But it sounded it sounded like Warner wants it to come out at Christmas, that they desperately want to get it out there. They probably uh, really need the cash flow would be my assumption. And, you know, whether or not it makes a profit at this point might be a total uh, lost cause, but if they can at least get some money back on the investment they've made, then I would think they might want to do that. You know, AMC said they're currently running only about 10 to 15 percent of their seats are filled on an average movie, and they need to get up to 25 percent to start to break even. Um, and the other problem is that they're a lot. Only half of the theaters are running on a daily basis. Most about half are running only in the weekends right now, which I didn't know until I looked at this. Um, um, and also, most of them are only doing one or two showtimes a day on the weekend instead of four. So, you know, they even if Wonder Woman ends up in the theaters, there may not be nearly as many showtimes uh, as there usually would be. And so I don't know how much they can make uh, if they go to that kind of model. Well, you, and you bring up a good point because, you know, you mentioned that you mentioned the tensions that have been between streaming and studios and, and AMC. And I remember, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember this this year that when, <laughs> you know, AMC wanted to go to war with Universal over trolls because they put trolls out on, on VOD and it made a massive amount of money and it pissed off the AMC guy enough to like want to like ban Universal Studios. Including like Fast Fast Nine and all their films from their theaters from then on, um, so that's probably not smart. But but you know after that, there was there was this thinking that like oh if if only we could get to you know August and Christopher Nolan's Tenant will get will be in theaters that will save the movie industry and all of it made all of like fifty million dollars. Um, would it have been smarter for the theaters to just 
not go to war with the studios and kind of you know and keep the theaters closed and until there was like more normalcy in terms of like people going rather than like rushing to open just to get tenant in there and then no one shows up because everybody's still weird about you know a deadly virus and being in close quarters <laughs> well it is really difficult to say because even today we see that the theater companies are taking different strategies you know regal has decided to shut down completely versus amc is pretty insistent that they should stay open because they want their customers to sort of have this sense that they can still go to the movies if they want to even if there's really nothing to see right now and so whether or not they should take this aggressive stance with the studios i mean to me it feels like the theater chains don't have a lot of bargaining chips right now and so the studios seem to be in a position of power and I, I don't see that changing anytime soon but obviously the theater chains still have something to offer and that is the you know the the big budget experience of course that you can't really get at home um one interesting thing i noted out of their earnings report is that the people who are going to the theaters are spending the same amount as normal on concessions which is like a very small sliver of hope but it basically indicates that listen when people go they're still like they still want to have a good time and they're not uh, afraid at least to get concessions at the movie theater so that's kind of interesting and then also um movie ticket prices they stayed the same <laughs> um which is interesting they haven't lowered the prices for the most part at this point um and so that's probably a positive sign if you're amc maybe not a positive sign if you're a moviegoer but uh also indicates that they're trying to at least hold on to some semblance of normal what do you think about independent movie theaters around the country like there's some really big ones and there are some like smaller chains and stuff um and then obviously there's like a lot of people where there's just like one little theater in your town um what are they facing right now and would the big chains going out of business you know change anything about their situation well i think that across the economy unfortunately the people who are generally in the worst shape are small businesses. You know, that's one reason probably why the stock market is doing well, because the stock market tends to reflect large companies and major corporations, which are hurting in a lot of cases, of course, but maybe uh, ultimately able to survive this better than the small guys. You know, like the AMCs of the world can access the credit markets. They can issue debt and stock to raise money here where, versus it's probably going to be a lot more difficult for an independent chain to do that. But what I think the independent chains have going for them is they have loyalty probably that the bigger chains don't have. They have uh, relationships with people in their local markets and those people may be more likely to come back to the theater chain, some, uh, you know, to the theaters sooner than later. Um, so the problem is, can you make it through this? You know, it's just such a waiting game. And, you know, the good news is, hey, AMC said on their call that they expect that they, they've been talking to experts who are very close to the way that the vaccine uh, process is unfolding. And they believe the phrase they used was sizable percentage of Americans will be uh, vaccinated by uh, March or April. That sounds like maybe a little optimistic to me based on what I've heard, but if it's anywhere close to that, then maybe you could see them uh, barely getting uh, past the finish line without having to file for bankruptcy. Okay, one last quick question before we let you go, because this is a pop culture podcast. What's your pop culture go-to? What's your kind of comfort food that you use to kind of help you cope or just kind of, you know, think about something else? Well, 
I have, okay, I, I'm so far behind the times, but uh, my wife and I have gotten into parks and recreation during the pandemic. So that's definitely been our thing. I know that it's like literally been off TV for five years at this point. And I didn't just say literally because that's what uh, Rob Lowe's character always said on the show. But <laughs> but no, I uh, we, we have really loved that. That has been uh, that's been great. Now, if you want to dig back into like way back in, into my history, I was a lost geek for the longest time until I was terribly disappointed and will be bitterly angry forever at the way it ended. Uh, and then lastly, okay, here's the other thing I also love is Survivor. And I don't think you guys talk much about Survivor, but I have to tell you, I'm a Survivor dev- devotee. So uh, unfortunately, I'm very disappointed that they aren't filming and likely aren't going to come back until probably fall of 2021 at this point because they can't put their contestants in harm's way overseas. So yes, that, those are my things. Nobody wants them because they're Americans. We can't get into the countries for them to film. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Nathan, thanks so much for joining us. Please come back. We'd love to have you back. So you know, I know. Great. I'd love to. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Okay, listeners, it's your turn. Are you going to watch Freaky? And if so, are you seeing it in a theater or waiting for the streaming option? Let's talk about it on Twitter. You can find us at Mother Shapod or you can tweet at us individually. I'm at BrettMalita23. I'm at Brian Truitt. I'm at KLALS, K-L-A-W-L-S. And our colleague Nathan is on Twitter as well. You can find him at Nathan Bowman. Uh, don't forget, you can email us too. We're at MothershipPod at USAToday.com. Um, but we're going to wrap it up here. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to our pilot slash producer of The Mothership, Natalie Boyd. If you like the podcast and don't want to miss an episode moving forward, you can subscribe to The Mothership for free on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a rating or a review. It helps other people find the show and we get some great feedback. If Apple Podcasts isn't your thing, you can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you're listening to podcasts. Till next week, nerds out. Bye.